0: You're listening to the Ruby on Rails Podcast on the 5x5 Network. You're listening to episode 269 and I'm your host, Brittany Martin. Sonia is a senior software engineer at Devoted Health, a company working to provide better health insurance and care for seniors by treating them all like family. At Devoted, she uses Go and TypeScript to build tools that help coordinate care for Devoted's members. Before working at Devoted, she worked at BookBub, a book discovery service where she fell in love with Ruby and Ruby on Rails. She'll be giving a talk this year at RailsConf on how to fix flaky tests and maintain a reliable test suite. Welcome to the show, Sonya.
1: Thanks. It's great to be here.
0: Fabulous. Well, Sonya, can you please tell us your developer origin story?
1: Sure. So I guess if it counts I started making my very first very 90s websites back in middle school with lots of marquees and those special cursor effects where you have like stars trailing behind but uh I didn't really start programming until college um where I took a couple computer science classes and I liked them but they were very abstract it was like build a compiler. And I wasn't sure at the time whether this was what I wanted to do with my life, Um, but I did know that I loved writing. So I ended up majoring in English and towards the end of my time at college, I got the chance to learn a bit more web development, including some Rails uh, through some extracurricular programs. So it wasn't until I got my first job after college where I was working at a startup a book bub alongside some software engineers that I really started to understand what it would be like to be a software engineer professionally and also started to realize that it was something I really wanted to do and actually was really suited for. Uh, it turned out it turned out because it was, it was just so different from the kind of work that I had actually done for my computer science classes, uh, I just didn't realize what it would be like real software engineering is so much, there's so much communication, trying to write code in ways that other people can understand. And I really love that aspect of it, in addition to all the logical challenges and building things uh, that felt concrete. So as I was working at BookBub, I started out on the business development team but I also started using the programming skills that I'd gotten in college, just kind of wherever I could, building out little internal tools and then starting to work on our internal admin, which was built with Ruby and Ruby on Rails. And the more I did, the more I really liked it. And I ended up through a combination of some self-teaching and also learning on the job, I ended up learning enough to be able to move from the business development team over to the software engineering team within my first year at the company. And I've been a software engineer ever since.
0: I have always had an interest in Go, but haven't tried it myself. Coming from Ruby, what are the top three things I should know?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, switching from mostly programming in Ruby to programming in Go has been really interesting because they're so different. Uh, I really like programming with both of them, but in pretty different ways. I feel like the, the first thing I really noticed is that in Ruby, there's always a lot of different ways to do something or express something. So there's kind of a lot of freedom for you to decide how you want to write a particular piece of code. Uh, It could turn out differently on different days. And in Go, there's usually much fewer ways to write the same thing. And that can feel a little bit limiting at first, but it also makes learning it somewhat easier. Um, Another thing that I noticed was (laughs) there's no equivalent of Rails in Go in terms of being this really all-inclusive and super popular, like the one web framework that pretty much everybody uses. Um, There are definitely some model view controller frameworks out there, but there isn't as much of one clear winner, and there are more people who are rolling their own. And I think it's often because people who are using Go are often building more custom high scalability use cases and so they just want more control over the entire web application. Uh, So they just use smaller third-party libraries or parts of the standard library to put that together. So that's been just kind of an interesting difference to observe in the community. And then there's also the fact that Go is statically typed, of course, and Ruby is not, at least not yet, though I do hear there are some developments on that front with Ruby 3. Uh, And I was really interested in spending some time working with a statically typed language in production, since it's one of those things as a Ruby programmer, you'll hear people saying like, oh, if only we had types, that bug would have never happened. Um, And having types is definitely really nice sometimes. I mean, to me, it feels kind of like getting a set of basic unit tests for free. So you don't necessarily know if your code is completely correct just because it compiles, but you do know it'll run. And I found it interesting to kind of adjust and recognize what the compiler can catch and then what it can't catch. Uh, It sometimes can even, will make me a little overconfident that my code is gonna work just because the types check out and then I run it and realize I've got the sign backwards or whatever. So there's still a need for um, writing good tests to make sure that your code is accurate.
0: Yeah, I would, I would love to hear of a situation where someone says, you know what, tests are just not needed anymore. We're, we're done with
1: tests. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely not the case.
0: Definitely not the case. Okay, well, what was it like to start a job where the code base is not in your core language?
1: Yeah, so I did try out Go a bit before I started, um, but most of my learning of Go was on the job, and I think it really helped that my company is... There, there were many people who joined before me who hadn't used Go professionally before, and so they were used to helping people ramp up on it. And uh, there was lots of support for doing that. I tried to do a lot of pairing in my first couple of months to help get ramped up, um, since it's a great way to not just learn like the syntax and the basics, but like how people actually program, like what is the workflow like, what's the fastest way to Uh, Debug and run your tests and all of that. And so I tried to do more observing and pairing uh, whenever I could when I was starting out. And I think the other thing was just trying to be easy on myself because it is really hard to go from being super comfortable in a language, having used it for years and years, and Then go to a new language where you feel like you're constantly writing with your left hand or something. Even the basic things are really hard and you have to look them up and it can feel like you forgot how to code. So I did have to kind of like recognize like, okay, this feels hard because I'm learning, um, but it's going to get better. It definitely does. And it's been really worth it to get that like really contrasting experience of working in a different language.
0: Yeah, that sounds like a really cool opportunity to just level yourself up overall as an engineer. So that that is really neat and something I'm definitely going to have to try myself. So moving on to your RailsConf talk, fixing flaky tests like a detective, I'm going to read the synopsis real quick. Every test suite has them, a few tests that usually pass, but sometimes mysteriously fail when run on the same code. Since they can't be reliably replicated, they can be tough to fix. The good news is there's a set of usual suspects that cause them. Test order, async code, time, sorting, and randomness. While walking through examples of each type, I'll show you methods for identifying a culprit that range from capturing screenshots to traveling through time. You'll leave with the skills to fix any flaky tests fast, with strategies for monitoring and improving your test suite's reliability overall. This sounds like a fantastic talk, and definitely a reason that I wanted to bring you onto the show because without giving too much away, how do you uh, capture those screenshots?
1: Yeah, so Capybara, which is the main tool that people use to do full stack feature testing in Rails apps, uh, it actually has the ability built in, depending on which driver you're using, but for quite a few of the drivers that you can use with it, to capture screenshots whenever one of your tests fails. And that can be super helpful for figuring out what state everything ended up in at the end of the test. And so you can either implement that manually with uh, basically after each hooks around each of your tests, or you can use the capybara screenshot gem, uh, which I definitely recommend.
0: Why did you decide to give a talk about flaky tests?
1: Yeah. so fixing a flaky test was one of the first really tough bugs that I feel like I dealt with as a developer. And there was this particular test that was failing on uh, one of the first big features that I wrote. And I was just banging my head against the wall for weeks trying to figure out what was going on. And it really revealed to me like, how much I didn't know about the entire stack of that uh, that was running my tests, um, that was running my code, all of these different pieces that fit together and the really subtle things about them that can allow uh, a test to pass or fail intermittently. And so learning how to fix them really forced me to fill in all those gaps and ended up once I was able to fill in those gaps being really interesting and fun and I think the reason why I called the talk Fixing Flaky Tests Like a Detective is because it really feels like kind of a mystery. You're putting together these different clues, pulling together information. You're like observing. Sometimes I feel like I'm doing a stakeout when I'm trying to see a t- have a test fail again and get some more information. Uh, so it's just a really uh, interesting sort of problem. And it's a little bit different than your just typical bug because... A lot of uh, your typical bugs, if you don't fully understand them, you can basically replicate them by like, see, like see, figuring out what did the user report, how did they get into this state. You're able to replicate the error, and then you can just kind of try different fixes until the error goes away. And with flaky tests, you just can't do that because, by definition, they only pop up every now and then. It's really hard to re- reliably replicate them unless you have actually already <laughs> understood and solved them. And so you have to take a different approach to it. Um, so that was the other thing that I really was interested in giving a talk about, kind of communicating that idea of using a different methodology to solve these types of problems than you might use for other types of bugs.
0: So I have to ask this because it's pretty controversial within our community. <laughs> Should we expect to see the examples in mini, spe- mini test or RSpec?
1: Yeah, I agonized about that a little bit, too, um, because obviously Minitest is built into Rails, but then RSpec is also very popular. Um, I tried to make sure the talk was applicable, no matter whether you're using Minitest or RSpec, and I always call out if I'm referencing an RSpec-specific feature versus something that's specific to Minitest, since there's definitely plenty of people using both. (laughs) Um, So, yeah.
0: So I have certainly had this experience before where I have had a flaky test. Is there ever a time where you just say enough is enough and you just simply delete that flaky test?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. And it's a tough one. I think if that's coming up, if I'm at the point where I'm like, should I just delete this test? I try to take a step back and look at what am I testing and why am I testing it and what what are the potential um, failures that could happen if, because of a lack of test coverage, this sort of thing broke? Um, Because whenever you're writing tests, you're making trade-offs between how realistic do I want to be, how much effort do I want to put into that to get this much coverage versus how much do I want to keep my test suite simple and fast to run uh, and easy to change as I move forward. And so you're kind of trying to strike this balance. Um, There's this idea of... The testing pyramid that you may be familiar with, with unit tests on the bottom, lots of unit tests since those are fast to run, easy to write. And then as you go up the pyramid and things get more and more realistic and are testing more of the full stack or the full set of components that work together, you write fewer and fewer tests because those are harder to maintain. So I kind of look at what's my testing period for this pyramid for this particular feature look like? Uh, is it Does it have the right balance? Maybe I do have overkill in terms of the number of feature tests I'm writing for it. And if the flaky test is a feature test, I can remove it and maybe cover it with a JavaScript unit test or a back-end test or a controller test or something like that. Um, so it depends a little bit on the situation. Uh, it all, But I also don't want people to give up on writing a test for something just because they're running into flaky tests, because dealing with flaky tests really is part of writing tests, um, and so it can really prevent you from getting the coverage you want if you don't have the time and... Um, ability to dig in and fix some of the flaky tests. So I think I don't want to encourage just like deleting any tests that flakes, obviously. Um, but it is totally fair to take a step back and see how much is it worth it to me to maintain this particular test.
0: Sonia, I can't wrap up this podcast without asking what crime novel should I be queuing up to read?
1: Yeah, so I'm a huge fan of Tana French. Uh, she's written this whole series of murder mysteries that are set in or near Dublin, and they're just this great combination. They've got amazing character development, but also really well-plotted mysteries that you don't figure out until the very end, and I just, I just love her books. So the first book in that series is In the Woods, uh, but my favorite is probably The Trespasser. Uh, So probably makes sense to start at the beginning, but you don't strictly need to. Um, Really, any of Tana French's books are great. And the other ones I'd recommend, um, if you want something a little more offbeat, I just read The Seven and a Half Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle, which was really fun. If you liked Russian Doll, I'd definitely recommend that one. Um, And I've also enjoyed all of Galbraith's books. That's uh, J.K. Rowling's pen name for writing crime fiction.
0: That's awesome. I definitely needed some new stuff to read. So thank you so much for that. How can our listeners follow what you're up to?
1: Yeah, so you can find me on Twitter. Uh, My handle is Sonia B. Peterson.
0: And you can definitely catch her talk at RailsConf if you're lucky enough to be able to attend. And I'll link that all up in the show notes. It was fantastic to have you today, Sonia. Listeners, if you're attending RailsConf, be sure to attend Sonia's talk. Talk to you next week.